0: I told Josh i said well you and you and James stay here. He was your babysitter and and uh and i got a i remember going into Safeway prior to that and got you guys a great big sack of candy and uh I did get a fairly nice buck that year and and uh and I came back to camp and and you guys had gotten one of the horses out and was riding around, and you rode right over the top of everything that was camp, including the candy. (laughs) And uh, it was just a big mud hole. And, uh, but uh, by God, you were men, you know, you were masters of your own domain. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It was pretty cute. And then uh, you both came with me and we took a horse over and packed the buck back to camp. And uh, it was a, it was a great time.
1: These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit sigsauer.com. Well, Dad, we've heard uh, Grandma Janie's account of going into the Sierras, and a lot of people have, have asked me and, and talked about that, about you guys going into the Sierras as kids. Do you remember anything from that time?
0: I do remember a little bit. There was a great big rock, uh, a granite rock that was close to the camp, and we had a fire at the base of it and did all of our cooking op- over an open fire. Had a little grill there um, that we could set pots on and i remember that i uh, i was pretty young when we moved here to oregon so i was four or five years old the last trip that uh, i made up there and i couldn't tell you whether i was four or five at this point i also remember uh, catching a fish and uh, and i'd fished all day long and uh, my dad and brother uh, were pretty good fly fishermen my dad was an awesome fly fisherman honestly he uh he used a bamboo rod he used about two different types of flies but uh he knew how to think like a fish and he could cast it out there drag it back and and uh i didn't know all of his techniques but he just flat could catch fish and he always had a big creel full full of them and uh he had a little uh well, I guess they're bamboo creels, too, aren't they?
1: Yeah, or I don't know or, if they're, they're bamboo or reed. Those, reed, the, yeah. The basket yeah. ones, the real classic. Yeah, yeah. and,
0: uh, you know, their catch and release wasn't really a thing back then. Yeah. So it was uh, who could come back to camp with the biggest creel of fish, and he always had a lot of fish. But uh, anyway, I'd spent the day fishing, and uh I hadn't done any good, and, there was a rod sitting next to a kind of a great big pool, uh, and when I say great big, in my four or five year old mind, it was probably something that I couldn't jump across. But that was uh, about the effect of it. And uh, getting later in the evening, and and he suggested maybe I try fishing in that hole there. Well, there was a rod already laying next to it, and the line already in there, and and uh, so I sat down and i was told you know you need to be patient when you're fishing so i was pretty patient just (laughs) hanging out there and and, uh they you know kept looking at me from camp and and uh, i just hung in there for quite a little while and finally they said well just reel it up and come on in and and so i i lifted my rod up and lo and behold i had a great big german brown on the end of that thing and, and uh then I spent quite a lot of time. There was a, quite a few of those little holes around. They're just big, deep mud puddles, and and uh, and uh, I, they kept trying to discourage me from fishing those. And fishing other places might be more profitable. But I was convinced I'd caught that big one there, and they were all full of big ones. But uh, never seemed to catch another one. I'm, but uh, that was a that was a memory there. I remember getting in trouble one time and and uh uh, getting threatened that i was going to get spanked and and uh and i don't remember what i did to get in trouble but i remember uh, bending over and and uh looking through my legs and and uh and my dad cracking up uh uh, he didn't outright laugh but his chin started quivering and he just walked away and I remember the big burros we had. we had mammoth jacks and and, uh, and
1: what is a mammoth jack? It's not something that you see yeah. too often anymore
0: no uh, we yeah we had these mammoth burrows. and had a mammoth jack named Jackson. I remember him uh, There was a, a female named uh, Maud um, and uh, they' they're just uh they're just donkeys, but great big ones and uh, how big are they well jackson was over 16 hands and he was really long yeah um yeah, we could put all four of us kids up on his back there and there was room for another kid or two probably he was a mm. uh, yeah big slow moving animals uh very docile very gentle um i don't remember it but uh as a little guy two or three years old i was out petting one of them and uh, they kind of looked after you you know and uh, in my mom's journal she wrote that she looked out there and saw me laughing and and i was standing in between the head and hind leg of a female there and she was scratching her chin with her hind leg and i was standing in between that and uh, and it was rubbing against me but they were they'd really look after you um sometimes That. Um, little guys like me, they would throw in a pack, and I'd ride on one side of them. And, and uh, they just didn't have a lot of flight response. and They kind of liked people. yeah, And, uh, yeah, they were cool animals.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's big even for, for the standards of most mules. You know, over 16 hands. Of course, there's mules that are bigger than that. But, but a lot of them aren't, most of them aren't, that I've been around anyhow. So, kind of spending you know a good portion of your life in the mountains as a little tiny kid before you've ever been in school or anything like that, do you feel like that changed you know your outlook on on how how you were going to raise raise me as I was a little kid because you were taking me into the mountains at the very earliest of ages, yeah,
0: you know sometimes it was just a matter of economics uh you know we didn't always have money to go to Disneyland or something like that not that that would have been a preference but um you know it was the lifestyle that we led and uh and certainly the mountains always had an allure to me um and and they certainly did uh to my parents and and uh and so yeah if if I was going um my kids were going with me most of the time and and uh yeah, you were just a little over one years old, and took you up to Francis Lake there. And you were just learning how to walk, and you maneuvered pretty well on the dining room floor. But uh, when we got up there on all that uneven ground, why, uh, you were a walking tragedy, and it wasn't <laughs> a lot of fun to have you there as a as a young child. I can tell you that. So, but uh, yeah, w- uh, certainly worthwhile. Um, we made a lot of trips into Francis Lake, didn't we?
1: Yeah, I think I was in there every year of my life until I was 21 or 22. Wow. And that's uh, that's nine miles of, of wilderness one way. There's some... Mostly the grade isn't too bad, but there's some real treacherous points in that trail as well where, you know, if you get off... Honestly, if you get off you know 18 inches from the center of the trail you're looking at thousands of feet of fall and a lot of people would think that it's a little bit irresponsible to take a a a kid that can't even walk yet on something like that and I would say almost that it's irresponsible not to Uh, I wouldn't trade trade that for anything you know all those memories we had going back in there and and learning how to fish and kind of being your own person, getting to be in a in a little inflatable raft by myself as a little tiny kid. And, you know, that was incredible going out there and catching fish and it was just a a big wild wild and beautiful place with no one else around at all.
0: Yeah, and it and it was irresponsible of me, but it was it was fun. I don't but, think yeah. it was irresponsible. Yeah. 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 It worked yeah. out. It worked out. It yeah. almost didn't one time though. True
1: enough. So, I'd like to to hear that story from your perspective.
0: Well, that was interesting. So, you and and Josh and I, we went up mountains, and I don't know, you were probably, what, six years old? Somewhere in there. And Josh would have been about 10 years old. Mm -hmm. And so, we went up middle of summer, and uh, it was probably around the 10th of August, as I recall. It was right before fair. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe just a little earlier, maybe the 5th of August, somewhere in there. So, yeah, you kind of think the heart of the summer, hot. And it had been hot. It had been, you know, 90 degrees here in the valley. And so we went up there. um, We had coats. Um, I mean, that was the basic that we have coats. It had some rain gear. But uh, we had a good time. Um, We fished a little bit. And, and uh, with mo- moderate success, our, our best uh, fishing rig uh, got dropped, and, uh, and we were without that. But I'm not going to say who dropped that. <laughs> I'll say. Josh. <laughs> yeah, Josh dropped it. We uh, In the middle of the lake. I remember seeing lake, him
1: spinning yeah. around in a little tight circle on the raft, thinking that is not the uh the approved technique for catching fish out there yeah yeah yeah,
0: yeah. and you know josh uh, probably today being the rescue swimmer that he is he had jumped out of the raft and dived down the bottom and pulled it out of there and he actually thought that maybe he could do that as a 10 year old but yeah that wasn't gonna happen but uh any, anyway as we, cold as
1: that water is it might be preserved we should yeah. maybe uh put his rescue swimming skills to work and get him back up there and see if he can get my rod off the bottom
0: yeah yeah i remember about where it was yeah i do too that was a good little campsite we haven't utilized that for a while but anyway that that was uh that was fun we ended up catching some fish Uh, i don't know we spent two or three days up there which was kind of normal tradition and ate a lot of candy bars and a few fish and some chili beans and Hot dogs, and that was normal camp fare for us yeah and uh so the last morning um you know, I always made you guys responsible for doing stuff, and I said, all right, pack it up, boys we're gonna head out and so you guys uh it was warm uh, that morning, a nice warm morning, and uh started to rain a little bit, nice little warm rain. And you guys go down there and you get the raft out of the lake and you're wallowing in it and you get soaking wet and uh, you're laying on this wet raft and trying to get the air out of it and giggling and teeing and, and I'm at camp kind of tidying el- up everything else, getting the horses ready and, uh, and the temperature starts to drop rapidly and uh, I could tell it was gonna get cold and i could tell you guys were soaking wet you had no clue (laughs) that it could get worse than that and said uh, you know i started getting a little gruffer with you guys come on quit screwing around get ready let's go so by the time we were fully packed up and starting out uh, it started to snow and snowing hard and a uh, wind come up, and uh, everybody was getting chilled, and I don't know, Josh or you, somebody had something in your hand, and you'd drop it and have to get off, and, oh, I, I need to do something, I need to adjust this, can I get off for a second? And so we were stopped about four times in the first couple hundred yards, and I finally got upset with you, and I said, look, you guys, quit screwing around. We're going to freeze the death out here. Probably not the most brilliant statement <laughs> I ever made. <laughs> but I got your attention. It also wasn't far from true. It wasn't far from true. And, uh, oh, you guys started crying. Oh, we need to stop and make a fire. And I said, no, we're going to keep going. So we rode a little ways horseback. And then all three of us were pretty well chilled. And and I think I gave up some of my attire to to you guys. But anyway. You gave up everything but your t-shirt. Yeah. But anyway, uh, we were trooping out of there. And and, uh, I had a cowboy hat on, I remember. And and I kind of dipped my head down just a little bit. And and, uh, there was two or three inches of snow that slid off my hat there. It was cold. And we we got up to close to the top of the ridge and you were still insistent that we should stop and make a fire and you were telling me you know you're doing the wrong thing dad we, we, we got to stop and and, uh, and I said no we're going to just keep going here and uh, I was cold I know you guys were cold but I didn't know how cold everybody was and that and that was scary for me as a dad just not knowing how far I was pushing you guys. Uh, Josh sounded really cold. He was chattery, and uh, and he was pretty athletic. Always, you know, he could walk and run, and and uh, he he was out in front of us, and he was motoring. So we'd have to yell up to him occasionally. Are you doing okay? And and uh, we got down the other side and started into the main canyon where our pickup was. Um, his voice sounded a little stronger, and and, uh, and I knew we were going to be okay. And uh, so we got down to the bottom. I cranked up the heater on the old pickup, and and uh, we got all the chatters out of us, and and uh, made it. But it does uh, it does bode to how vulnerable you can be in the wilderness. And you know we were only nine miles in, but that can sure sure change in a hurry from being warm middle of summer to almost being in a tragic situation
1: i I remember the the flannel shirt that you gave me of course it was way longer than my arms were and and i was kind of walking without moving my arms and going pretty slow and when i did move my arms i remember watching the ice crack off the outside of that shirt and uh Man, up there on the top of that ridge when that wind was cutting on us the hardest. That was super, super cold. But by the time we got back down to the valley, I mean, it was it was warm again. We walked out of the snow. We just lost all that elevation and got out of it. And I remember stopping and uh picking some huckleberries on the way out and just how good a huckleberry can taste after something like that. It's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, and you know, and people that were in the valley here, not far away, saying, oh, it must have been a beautiful time up there. <laughs> and uh, it was most of the time. Yeah. And uh, there was just a about a two-hour period where it was a little rough. Yeah. So would that have been before or after
1: uh, me and you and Josh went in there and, and got that buck? That
0: was in another location. Oh, yeah. So that was in another location. Um, gosh, you know... That could have been about the same time frame. Could have been even the same year. I feel um, like I was younger. Yeah, you you probably were Maybe younger. Maybe a couple yeah. years younger. Yeah, you I, probably were I younger. I think I was four or five in that one. Yeah, yeah. So no, that was a that was a fun trip too. Um, like completely irresponsible of me, but uh, we had fun. So yeah, we went up similar, probably eight or nine eight miles, or nine miles in, zone, yeah. In, set up a nice camp there and, and uh yeah um opening morning uh it snowed all night long um and you guys kind of wanted to come with me i needed to get over oh i don't know a couple miles further to where i felt like the deer bucks were maybe at and, and uh so i left you and josh there in camp um you were still sound asleep. Josh and I got up and built a great big fire and sat around it because our tent leaked. Your head was in a little ice puddle, and, uh, but you were just as fine with that at the time. <laughs> and So I told Josh, I said, "Well, you and you and James stay here. He was your babysitter, and and uh, and I got a. I remember going into Safeway prior to that and got you guys a great big sack of candy and. Uh, I did get a fairly nice buck that year and and uh and I came back to camp and, and you guys had gotten one of the horses out and was riding around and you rode right over the top of everything that was camp, including the candy <laughs> and uh it was just a big mud hole and uh but uh, by God you were men, you know, you were masters of your own domain. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it was pretty cute and then uh, you both came with me and we took a horse over and packed the buck back to camp and uh, it was a it was a great time Um, and we all all felt like we were masters of our of our wilderness there And, and that's kind of the wonderful thing about having a wilderness is you know people talk about Purchasing uh, these these great properties and and uh, some of that public land, I'm glad it is public uh, for that reason. You know, you you can be a a pretty poor person and go up there and that's the that's your place. That's your your property, and and within reason, um, you can do a lot of fun things there.
1: Yeah, and with with us growing up right on the edge of it, it didn't take a lot of time to go you know if if we had a night chances are we were going in there um, if we had a weekend there's a good chance we were going in and you know it, it it also didn't take much in in terms of gear people get hyper focused on you know the absolute cutting edge of gear very much myself included and partially because i've been out there in those circumstances where you know gear would have made a a tremendous difference but a lot of times we would just take a a tarp and cotton sleeping bag
0: and you know a rain jacket was a trash bag and you just go Yep. and it didn't take a lot of time I remember one time when I was working at a sawmill your uncle was up here and wanted to go fishing I got off a swing shift at uh, one or three in the morning I can't remember Uh, but Went home and and, uh, got a few things ready. Uh, I had a little mule. Very little. Very little. Very much different from the Mammoth Jack. Very much different, yeah. Um, Not gentle, (laughs) Um, but, um, you know, she was 42 inches tall. Somebody named her Belle, and we had a little tiny pack saddle for her. But I could never get enough weight on her to bog her down. You got to where you couldn't hardly see the mule underneath all the pack, but she was amazing. She'd go up there and never break a sweat. Uh, most of the time, you didn't need to to uh, shoe her. Uh, she fit nicely in the back of a three-quarter ton pickup with a little set of wood racks on it. And uh, it was really simple to jump her in, throw that on there, Throw a hundred pounds on her, and and you had camp, and away you go. So, if yeah. you did shoe her, how did you do it? On my knees, yeah.
1: Well, wasn't there something the to do with her shoes? Yeah,
0: yeah. So it was the smallest pony shoe I could find, and then um, I would cut the end, cut the heels of them off because they were still too long, and then I'd put uh, two number four nails on each side because there really wasn't room for three, and. Uh, yeah that was that was it yeah she was a she was a cute little mule and and uh uh, she was as herd bound as can be uh but also uh she was an instigator if she was up there with other livestock and and she saw an escape route uh, she'd lead the whole bunch of them out of there lickety split (laughs) so you kind of had to keep an eye on her but she hauled out uh some bucks for me out of some places that you know it, it, she was darn near mountain goat um, you could tether on a, just a long rope and she'd never get tangled in it she was smart you know a horse would have been tangled up and upside down and so she was really great for that sort of thing and and uh, um, if you just wanted to lead in without having to put all your backpack on she didn't eat very much and uh that was a that was a great little instrument to get in and out and uh uh without a lot of fanfare. So you get off a shift at the
1: mill at one or three o'clock in the morning. Yeah,
0: and and so we, we went up uh and uh jumped the mule out through the pack on and away we went. Uh we got in there sometime around one o'clock in the afternoon. And, uh, and I took a nap. And, uh, you know, one of the things that's really gratifying is going in there, people that haven't had that experience, and watching uh, your Uncle Rick that had worked so hard to provide for his family and been known as the grindstone and just wanted to fish occasionally, to see him out there on that little raft uh, pulling in some big old lunkers every now and then. You know that's that's better than catching them yourself, and and so he fished there. Uh, he hiked around, fished a few other places up there. I had to be back. I alternated shifts right then. I had to be back at work Monday morning at uh, six a.m. And so we got back uh, Sunday evening sometime and put everything away. And and uh, and so that was a really short weekend but, uh, still got to, to go into the mountains. It was a good trip. I really memorable. I, I, uh, always liked Rick and that, and that was a lot of fun spending that time with him.
1: I hear some people talk about travel and they'll, they'll say, uh, Oh, Greece, I've done Greece or, uh, Oregon. Yeah, I've done Oregon or, you know, the Eagle cap wilderness. Oh, I've done the Eagle caps. Like I've been going into this wilderness my entire life and you know, I'm going to continue doing it and I feel like I'm just scratching the surface.
0: Yeah, I I feel that way sometimes too. There's there's quite a bit of it that, that I haven't been to yet. I've been to most of the lakes. I've been to uh, a large portion of the peaks, but uh, yeah, I it didn't really ever matter to me exactly where I went. Uh, there's some places that... Uh, or just kind of obscure, that that don't have a lot of destination to them, that we went to uh, just to be there, and, and it just felt good to to be there. And uh, I remember, Mark, when you graduated, uh, the keynote speaker there, his dad wrote River Runs Through It. Oh,
1: John McClain.
0: Yeah, John McClain. I remember a quote that he said there, and it was his own quote, but... Uh, he said that he could uh, remember a time in Montana and places that looked like creation had just taken place. And there are places like that, and, uh, and I've seen them. And, and when, uh, when you come across them, it's just brilliant. And, uh, and, and I love that about the wilderness.
1: Well, it used to be a tremendous place for all kinds of hunting, deer in particular, uh, now it 's quite a tragedy what what has happened with the mule deer and and the lack thereof. Uh, I can spend days and days and days and never see a single deer and in fact um, i 've been hunting in in the wilderness for deer since you know I was twelve years old i 've yet to kill a deer in the wilderness and there is there is a, a real golden period probably between, you know, 1940, mid eighties kind of tapering out, um, starting in the mid nineties where it was really incredible. Lots and lots of deer, lots of really big, mature bucks. And, uh, and now it's just a, a void. It's just a void of, of wildlife in general.
0: Yeah, it, uh, that's true. Um, it was never easy to kill a mature buck up high, though. And there were so many deer around in the canyons and different places that a lot of us didn't really think about hunting up high. It was, uh, you know, you could you could get a pretty big buck in an, in a number of places. And, and a lot of people, you know, it, it wasn't uh, a matter of size of buck. Uh, it was just a matter of... Uh, economy and making sure that you got enough deer that that provided for your family and so you know if you could get a two or three year old deer um, sometimes uh, there was a bigger emphasis on that or even just a yearling forked horn that that was a wonderful thing and it was esteemed to to go ahead and get them and uh, we had unlimited tags and you could buy tags during the season and Ethical or not, a lot of the men would go out and fill their tags, and they'd come home, and, and they'd go to town with their wives and get their tags and go out with their wives and and fill them, too. But, you know, that there isn't such an emphasis on that anymore. Um, for $4, you could get a buck tag, and it was really meaningful to, to put that meat in the freezer, and it doesn't seem like it... Uh, it is that much anymore
1: depends who you're talking to i guess yeah and a lot of people are dishonest with themselves about it and it's it's almost becoming if we're not careful it's going to become a generational lie about what we find satisfying in hunting because there's people that say it's only about the meat and there's people that say it's only about the antlers but uh you know gosh if 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 somebody's going out there meat hunting and they get the opportunity to shoot just a Great, big buck. They're really excited about it. They're more excited about that than if they didn't. and you know, I think we we just need to be honest about about all the aspects that that we find compelling in hunting, and if we do that, then we'll be able to keep keep those things important. Um, and all of them are important. all of them are important. It wasn't hunting pressure that took the deer out of the wilderness, not not human hunting pressure for sure. Because people weren't going up there and doe hunting, and uh, and removing bucks doesn't do much to the deer population. Right. Um, but you know, it really started changing when um, when Oregon banned hunting with hounds. Uh, that's deer were already declining. I won't argue that at all. The the data is clear that deer were already declining. But the speed in which deer population started declining after hound hunting was band was really remarkable and you know we have half as many deer now as we did just a few years ago and that was half as many as just a few years before that the track that we're on right now for mule deer is it's really scary you know i've i've got very little hope that you know my my young nephews are are ever going to be able to hunt mule deer
0: yeah and and that's a bona fide fear um i will follow that up though with old timers, I remember talking to them when I was young and them talking about the uh, recovery of mule deer because, you know, like Bud Zollman he talked about when he was young that if you found a mule deer track, you stayed on it until you killed him because you might not find it to cut another track that season. So, you know, going back into the 30s and, and some of that era... Uh, I'm not exactly sure what took place at that point in time, um, but th- there was a severe decline here in this given area, um, and, uh, and then we saw a recovery. Um, most of them, and, and completely politically incorrect, most people would say the recovery largely was due in part uh, to compound 1080, and, uh, you know, we had 200,000 sheep in this county alone that, that went up out of the Snake River. And those guys, those sheep herders, um, you know, they were full-time predator management. And if they had the tools to manage predators, they managed them really well. And uh, Oakley Johnson uh, had said that that he had taken... 104 bears in one year um one individual sheep herder so uh that's an incredible amount of predation right there uh, they were in the sheep I mean, everything likes to kill a sheep you know a, a coyote a bear a cougar and, and uh wolf wolf yeah and uh, we just saw incident of that here the other day but uh yeah time and again uh Um, those sheep herders were vigilant about predation. And uh, so when we lost that and we lost that tool, uh, we lost hound hunting, uh, and and then we pulled a lot of those sheep people out um, and mostly in the effort to make sure that Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep um, had a good foothold here without pressure of of disease from pneumonia from domestic sheep that's when a lot of the decline took place but uh, i remember as a as a young guy first hunting and even before i was old enough to hunt um, i had a pretty keen set of eyes and and i'd spot deer for people and and uh, they were just everywhere you know you you'd drive down to them nah and from enterprise downha you'd see 300 deer along the side of the road and up in the brakes and and uh, there wasn't a place you know whether it be remote uh, the places that you didn't see them i guess was in town yeah that that's a new anomaly here um, and that's you go across eastern oregon and you drive and drive and drive these large expanses and you don't see a deer you come to a little town, and right on the outskirts of town, you see a little bunch of mule deer, and uh, that's sad. Yeah, yard bucks are a
1: thing throughout the West, and it's kind of a mystery to some people, but to me, it, it's very obvious. They're they're living in the place that they can survive, and they don't look good. They're not getting the, the feed that they need. Um, I'm pretty sure deer aren't supposed to survive on, you know, roundup ready grass and you know lilacs they really do look pretty terrible most of the time but our our mule deer populations are now urban and it's because that's a place that the predators are not tolerated at all and you know they'll they'll sacrifice their habitat um so that they can survive that predator pressure it's uh it's pretty interesting. And then we see lots of initiatives about like road closures and how, how roads are affecting um, deer because too many people are buzzing around on ATVs or whatever. But then we also see more deer and elk on private land than on public land. And on that private land, ranchers and farmers are out there buzzing around on ATVs on a regular basis. There's roads, there's fences, all those obstacles. So that doesn't seem to be the issue. Habitat also does not seem to be the issue, even though that's something that, that we continue to, uh, to, to run up the flagpole. You know, the, the habitat in the, in the wilderness is still tremendous. You know, it's very lush, but since those does have been killed there by lions and and other predators, then there aren't fawns who have learned that that's the place where they're supposed to live. Um, so once you once you remove that then you only get fawns that are born out of does that have found a place where they don't get killed by a predator it's quite a tragedy i agree with the with the sheep herder thing and, and they it's still evident in a lot of places in the west places that run bands of sheep tend to be um places that have more mule deer than oh. places that don't have sheep oh interesting and these uh Sheep herders were pretty incredible people. there's a couple you know really well I would say heroic acts that the sheep herders in this country did. Um, do you recall any of those?
0: Yeah there was a write-up on Gus Malaxa before he passed away and uh, he was a Basco sheep herder and uh, the Basque came in here and uh, and were sheep herders and and a lot of them um, started out. As contract labor to to be sheep herders and saved all their money and ended up buying the sheep herds that they were over and and uh, um, you know incredibly hard workers Gus Malaxa uh, walked his whole life uh, never had a driver's license he walked to town to get his groceries and walked back he walked sheep from Willa County into Montana, um, from the lower canyons in the Snake River to the high alpines, you know, eight nine thousand feet. Uh, and uh, yeah, the story that I remember most about Gus Malax and I'm rambling here quite a little bit, but uh, down at Cherry Creek, which is on the breaks of the Snake River, that was their winter range, and they had sheep down there. And it snowed two feet, which was unusual. And then it crusted over and uh, got cold and, and uh, crusted that snow over. The sheep couldn't paw down to the grass. And so you were on the river quite a little bit. How far is it from there in Cherry Creek to Lewiston?
1: Well, in my 400-horsepower jet boat, it would take me about two and a half hours to charge upstream. Um, it might be... 50 or 60 miles. 50 or 60 miles along the bank there. And and a lot of that bank, I don't know if I could walk it at all.
0: Yeah. So Gus, uh, knowing that his sheep are in a vulnerable state there, he took off and walked and ran to Lewiston in 24 hours and rented a helicopter um, and had somebody fly some feed into a sheep and drop it off from the helicopter. Uh, Pretty heroic act um, and an amazing feat of uh, endurance to be able to do that. Uh, If you've ever walked 100 yards in crusty snow that's two feet deep, you're exhausted after 100 yards. And to cover that much uh, of an area in some of the roughest portions of the world hells canyon wasn't named hells canyon cuz it's formidable it's uh, it's unformidable yeah, and uh, but that's what he did yeah, and it's and it's and a, the, it's cr- the cr- steepest gorge in north america yeah 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 uh, an amazing act if uh, yeah if somebody wanted to have a fun endurance race sometime uh, maybe they could take off at the most pleasant time of year and and try to recreate the Gus Malaxa run. That'd be an interesting thing to do.
1: Yeah. If you were to just put in there at Cherry Creek and a raft and float, it would probably take you two and a half days to get to Lewiston. Uh with with some good rowing in between. Huh. Yeah. Absolutely incredible that he was able to do that. Um, yeah verging on superhuman. And he would walk from there to Enterprise, which, well, you can't even drive there, but it, it would be a, a four- or five-hour drive um, if you could. And he would do it every month to make his, his payment on his loan. Yeah. So amazing. So amazing. Tough, tough people.
0: Yeah, the Bascos, uh, to me, was the most fascinating thing about uh wallowa county as a little kid you know you'd see these thousands and thousands and thousands of sheep and they'd be moving along and uh and then you'd get to the very end of them and and you'd see one person and uh and four or five dogs and just incredible what one person could do and uh the level of attention to detail um you know and some of them would be limping at at the end of the bunch there that that were slower and and uh and they went at the pace of of what they could accommodate those sheep that that needed to get healed up a little bit always admired that
1: now not all of the bascos were uh were frugal and good with their money you got another story about about that as i recall Guy that would do a little bit of drinking on his days off.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. And so, um, yeah, I can remember sheepers that that came into town that would probably be placed in mental health institutions today, um, but they had jobs uh, and uh, um, they would stay out with the sheep for maybe a month at a time. And, uh, and then the owners of the sheep outfit would drop them off in he- Enterprise and, and you'd see them at the tavern and they'd drink the whole weekend. And, uh, and some of them you'd have a hard time even carrying on a conversation with even before they were drunk. Um, they didn't have a lot of human contact or, or uh, social skills but yeah, my favorite story about that was one weekend a guy he was loading up two of his sheep herders to put them back in a plane to go back to the Snake River, and they'd both been intoxicated the whole weekend, and they were currently intoxicated, and and so the the owner of the sheep putting them in his plane, and uh, and they're struggling to get in there, and and uh, um, a local dentist. He remarked to the, the owner of the sheep, and he says, and the owner of the plane, and uh, he said, that, that's a quite a crew you got there. And he kind of poking fun at him, and, and he just went ahead and assisted and closed the door on the plane, and and walked over to the dentist, and he said, I'll tell you what, he said, tomorrow these guys will be sobered up. I'll give them each a hundred thousand dollars worth of sheep to watch over. And they'll do a damn good job. And he said, "I sure wouldn't trust you with that." So, you know, we had we had people like that here that were loggers, and uh, they had a level of esteem in those positions. And uh, when you take that all away from them, th- there was a place in society for for everybody during that time, and and uh, and they were esteemed for, for doing the job that they did. Yeah. yeah. Heck of a tough job. You know,
1: if you threw me in that airplane, dropped me off and gave me all them sheep and a couple of dogs and a thirty thirty, and said, make sure they all make it. I don't think I could do it. You know, I don't, I don't have the, the skills to make that happen right now. So yeah, hats off to th- those who can.
0: Yeah. There was a sheep herder and I, I wish I could remember his name, but, uh, he, uh, he, he had a cougar one time grab a hold of one of his dogs his dog was trying to fend it off from attacking sheep and he was afraid to shoot because he might hit his dog and so he ran down there with a big rock that was in my way of thinking he kind of hold his hands apart it was bowling ball size and he hit the cougar on the head and killed it and uh you know it was a source of pride for him and rightfully so he said there are not many men that can say they killed a cougar with a rock but uh, he did yeah yeah
1: well i think we better take a couple minutes and talk about the the state of the union for wolves in oregon um you know we've got some stuff going on at the federal level um that i am don't fully understand uh and then we've got stuff going on at the local level so give us the the rundown.
0: Yeah, at the federal level. So we were we were delisted federally uh, on gray wolves in the lower 48 for about a year. And then the typical groups, uh, Defenders of Wildlife and others, um, they weren't happy with that, of course. And, and so they went judge shopping. They found a judge in, in Northern California that uh, they thought would be complicit with overturning and they presented that case. Um, yeah. cattlemans tried to join in the case as interveners and were denied. Uh, Safari International and National Rifle Association was allowed to be interveners in the case, uh, which I don't know what stake they National Riflemen's Association has in it. Uh, Safari International certainly could lose some game out there. But uh, cattlemen, sheep growers, they should have been able to have a seat at the ta- at the table during that, and were denied twice, uh, once initially, and then second time on appeal. So we didn't have a seat there, lost the case, and and now one judge makes a decision that they're federally listed again, and that's very unfortunate. Um, there is. Uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife is, uh started the paperwork to go through an appeal process, and we don't know if they'll actually go through the entire process, but they did file that, and, uh, and I appreciate uh, U.S. Fish doing that. Um, where it goes from here, I don't know. It needs to be backed up legislatively that decision, and if you look if you look up wolf saga, um, going back to the 1970s, the number of lawsuits that have happened, we can't manage wolves via judges' decisions. This has to be done. Uh, they have to be delisted, and then let the states come up with their own plan. You know, I don't necessarily like the Oregon Wolf Plan, but it is a plan that was vetted here locally. Um, Idaho has a plan. Montana has a plan. Wyoming and other states have plans. And honor those. Um, and if, if you don't like uh, the way it's going, you have some say in the matter uh, when those plans are reviewed. And uh, uh, But just for a federal judge to... to lay down a gavel. That's a bad way to manage any uh any animal.
1: Yep. Okay. So, how many uh how many wolves got counted in Oregon last year?
0: 175. How does that compare with previous years? It was 173 the year prior. And so we made a gain of two wolves. And you got to keep in mind that that is a minimum count. And so I do believe odf is doing their level best to count wolves. Uh, the problem is we know that there's more wolves than what they're able to count on the western side of the state especially, and in that heavy timber, um, you need to have a modeling estimate rather than, uh, yeah, that's the wolf that we counted yesterday. Um, you know, you, you can't get your eyes on them. In Eastern Oregon, they had the luxury of flying over them, uh, differentiating size, color, colors, all of those things to say, yeah, we, we can boldly say that this is our minimum count, and and we don't think there's a lot more than that. Um, it it's difficult. Uh, I'm I'm I can't imagine trying to come up with uh, a count and having that exacting number but uh do we count uh, other wildlife like that so when we say that there's
1: 6000 mountain lions in Oregon does that mean they've gone out and identified 6000 individual mountain lions that they've uh you know observed with their eyes
0: no absolutely
1: not elk A, deer no no so no. we we model every other species but wolves we have to count as individuals right that's yep. bogus
0: yeah and it was difficult for him to count them, even when we had one or two packs. Yeah, I mean, I mean that it's a just a it's a it's a difficult task. But anyway, yeah, 175 was the minimum count, and take that for what it's worth. U.S. Fish and Wildlife, when they first came in here, talking about their modeling, said that we could count anywhere from a third to two thirds, and uh, um, so you know. Uh, do we have 300 wolves in Oregon? Uh, likely so, but you know I'm I'm not here to to judge. I'm not the one that yeah. that is conscripted. But yeah, 175 is is the minimum count that we have right now.
1: Okay, and and if we use U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services uh, model, you can add 30 to 60
0: percent to that. Are the are the wolves behaving right now? Well. They're just doing what wolves do, and and so we've had quite a time of it here. Northeast Oregon this year, uh, both in Baker and Wallowa County, there's been quite a few cattle that have been killed. Uh, Sheep have been killed. Uh, Some people uh, participate in the program and call those kills in. Others don't. Uh, They're uh, disenchanted with the whole process.
1: Why would they be disenchanted?
0: Well, some of the investigations to start with don't turn out the way the producers think they should. Um, And uh, I'll give you an example. We had one here uh, about a couple weeks ago. And so this is a family that is multi-generational sheep growers and, and large producers. And so everything kills a sheep. And I've already covered that earlier, but um, they've seen it all over multiple generations. So uh, they call me up first thing, and they say, "Todd, we we had a wolf kill our sheep." Some of the people that call, I, I'll be honest, you know, they don't know what they're looking at. They they suspect that maybe it was a wolf, and and uh, um, but when these guys call, I I give it some credence to begin with they've had wolves killed sheep uh, within the last few years they know what it looked like Uh, they were the family that that had uh, sheep killed when OR4 was taken out back in 2016 they they absolutely know what they're looking at so anyway um I went out I they said should we have it investigated first and uh, I said well I can't tell you, you know, all I can say is, look, I think that it's important that we continue to participate, that we continue to look these things over. That would be my advice. Because what ends up happening is if you don't have it investigated, it comes back that we didn't have any problems last year. And so, so we went through the whole process out there. Uh, wildlife services was called out um wildlife services is still under a gag order they can't make a determination they could tell you if it was a bear or a coyote or a cougar but they can't tell you if it's a wolf and and that needs to change so So,
1: wildlife services are the the government usda professional trappers who all they do is manage predators so they're under a gag order from the state that they cannot say if it was a wolf, but they can say if it was any other predator.
0: They're not a, under a gag order because they're not controlled by the state, but okay. their federal that federal entity has made that decision because of where they are with their NEPA, with their ESA uh, or EIS, I should say, um, that uh, environmental impact statement that they should not engage in that and make that determination. So we had an old trapper here, and they're called federal trappers. But we had an old federal trapper here, and he wasn't about to let anybody tell him what he could or couldn't say. He had filled out a whole investigation report, um, and and he would tell people straight up, it was wolf, it was coyote, it was whatever. And uh, and they knew they couldn't control him. He was in his last years, and, and uh, if he got fired, he didn't really care. When he retired, that was the end of that. And, um, and so, yeah, that's unfortunate, but that's the way it is. But they still go out and, and help with investigations. Uh, in this case, uh, help with skinning and, uh, you know, looking at tracks and pointing things out and, and, and trying to be helpful. And, and it's appreciated. Wolf Committee Chair for the East Side of State of Oregon Cattlemen's John Williams, went out. Um, I went out. And, uh, and people may think that that's overkill. But, you know, this is to balance things out a little bit, too. Because the, sometimes the producers are emotionally charged. They're upset. And uh, if I can help to facilitate a calmer situation there... I mean, that's part of why we used to have the sheriff go out and still encourage sheriffs to go out so that they can defuse and and uh, and help with uh, with that situation as well as being informed. We want them to investigate and be well-trained up, too. But uh, rambling on quite a little bit here. But anyway, short of it is there's, there's five dead sheep there.
1: All killed in a night?
0: Yeah, all at one time, yeah. And... Uh, um for me it was really obvious that they were all killed in the same night the night before and so there there's tracks there um they're in my opinion a straight up wolf track Uh, i've seen large number of them it was a wolf track something about a wolf track that when you look at it there's something primal that kind of goes off in you it's not a dog track and uh um they're real sharp, crisp, athletic looking tracks and, and uh so um four of the five sheep are largely consumed. The the fifth sheep had backed herself as a large ewe, backed herself into a pond to kind of defend herself. Uh she hadn't been shorn in a while, and as soon as that fleece gets wet, she just sank and that's the end of her some bite marks on her after we skinned her out pulled her out of there the others uh, especially there was three three lambs rib cages are mostly gone they didn't necessarily discriminate the ribs from the from the meat or the flesh they like uh, if those lambs or calves are nursing they have milk in their gut and uh, kind of in a sort uh, stage of cottage cheese or something i suppose but they eat those things they they like them so those were gone another large u that was about half consumed uh, but anyway lots of tracks um, lots and lots of tracks so i kind of thought this was a slam dunk you know And the um no but the in Wildlife Services, ODFW. They don't say a word during the investigation to lend one way or another, um, but they're looking at, and so, you know, I walk away. The, the landowner and and livestock owner says, uh, "Well, what do you think?" And I said, "Well, it looks like an easy case to me," meaning that it was obvious to you that it was wolves. Yeah, it was. It was very obvious. Yeah, uh, and at this point, I've been to more investigations concerning wolf livestock conflict than, than anybody in the state, short of Fred Steen, who was a sheriff and sheriff of Willow County that went out to more than I have. Um, and that doesn't make me special, but I've just seen a lot of it. Anyway, we get the report back, and it names coyotes as the culprit. And I, I was aghast. I didn't find a single fresh coyote track on scene i saw one that was maybe a day old and uh, it was really discouraging that that didn't that investigation wasn't right the landowner livestock owner i should say called me up and said well um you know you said to go through the process we did and here we are again it's it's nothing new that we haven't seen played out before Um, but it's really discouraging and so I did make some phone calls I asked the livestock owner to ask for a review of that whole process and uh, about a week later we got a report back that it was reviewed and they went ahead and confirmed uh, three of the five sheep were wolf kills Uh, they said two of the others were maybe a day before, and I. They, and, then, and honestly, they got that completely wrong. But I was glad they overturned as much as they did, and and I told them as much that that was. I know that's difficult to do that, uh, but they said they wanted to get it right, and and they did. Uh, the other thing that's happening now with a number of depredations that's happening on another fellow with cattle. I, I don't know, he's up to six or seven uh, attacks and lost a large number of calves now. And so in Oregon, if you have two confirmed kills, uh, you can go to lethal take. ODF and W can consider going to lethal take. So they have that authority. So he's up to, I don't know, six, seven, eight. I, I'm not sure right now where he's at. But instead of them taking lethal action, what they gave him was a permit to kill two wolves. Well he has already has the authority to kill wolves if they're biting, chasing, or killing his livestock on the east side of the state here. Whether where they are federally listed and state federally delisted and state delisted. And so he basically already has that authority there. But they give him these permits Volunteers from within his circle of friends went out, tried to protect his livestock. He still had problems. Uh, They put in over 500 hours in one week between volunteer uh, time, his own time. He's been sleeping in his pickup, um, working 16, 20 hours a day trying to protect his livestock, has all these volunteers. There was one wolf that was killed uh, during that time under that permit. And that's unusual. Um, that usually doesn't happen. But um, trying to get odf to take action is difficult. And so um, I had a call from from them saying, what do we do? And I said, reissue your lethal request and uh, and tell them what you're going through and and so they did they reissued that Um, they've had to move cattle that wouldn't stay in the canyons they put them in there's still grass left Um, they're wanting to rest some of their pastures that were hit hard last year and and we had a tremendous drought here and everybody's scrambling for feed Uh, hay is crazy expensive Uh, we've had the third coldest spring here since 1895 as reported by one of the chronicles uh, and that was in Washington state but we're close enough to Washington I'm going to adopt that for our own as well and uh, but uh, it's it's been really tough Uh, but you know we met that threshold of two confirmed kills uh, within a nine month period and it happened really within days and the wolves continue to remain in that area continue to have a presence and because they've killed animals and wounded others that just the presence of them alone now have heightened uh, those vi- the vigilance of those cattle and they've lost weight and uh, and lost feed opportunities And uh, been a tremendous strain on on that individual. And so how long do you keep going through those processes when in the end it doesn't do you any good? Right. So if you had your car broken into
1: and called the police and nothing happened, and then it happened again, you called the police,
0: nothing happened,
1: and then your car gets broken into again, what are you going to do?
0: Waste your time? yeah i i don't know i i've listened to so many frustrated people over this wolf situation and uh and i tell you know the this individual rancher is working so hard to do the non-lethal work to try to protect his animals to try to do what is right and it's nothing new i mean he's been doing it for three or four years now he's been working really hard at this game and now he's got to the point where he says i need help i need you to take lethal action and they threw him, you know, a little scrap off the table and said, well, here's a permit to kill two when he really already had that authority. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it bolstered the authority a little bit, but it, it was nothing. He needed, he needed real lethal help. And he'd gone and played the game with all the non-lethal and... Uh, and this is the way he got treated. So, you know, just need to to change the game at some point to where, when wolves become depredators of livestock, and especially chronic depredators of livestock, you take lethal con- lethal action. And yeah. uh, um, and you know, I've said it before, but when they Take game populations below management objective numbers, whether it be wolves, coyotes, cougars, whatever the case may be, it needs to be addressed, and uh, and that hasn't been addressed. And like you said before, uh, the the emphasis on controlling people will close that road. You know, we'll don't take um, ATVs out there. Don't don't do this. Don't do that. Don't log. Don't graze. Don't 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 even. Look that direction, and everything will get better. And and uh, these most remote places that we have, or have become deserts of, of non-game. Yep.
1: Yeah. No, it's the truth. You know, I was in Southeast Oregon, coyote hunting all this week, and uh, we saw uh, in in four days of hunting, uh, sixteen hours a day, we saw nine deer. And three antelope. Yeah, that's dreadful. But we killed eight coyotes. And uh, the numbers that are out there is that a coyote will, a female will kill 19 fawns in the spring. And a male will kill 22. Um, so, you know, we put 150 deer back on the board. And that that helps. But uh, But gosh, not
0: everybody can take a, take a week to just go hunt predators either well yeah it depends on how lucrative it is Uh, I remember back in the mid-90s Colorado was spending about $325 for every coyote they took and uh, an iconic state for mule deer and they wanted to hold the line on that and so state-funded uh, that's what they were doing to kill coyotes. And uh, uh, I remember thinking at the time, my gosh, if I got 325 bucks per coyote, I could spend some time doing that. Yeah. And I could get good at it. And uh, and I could take a week or two off and go coyote hunting. And so, you know, uh, those bounties are, are so looked down on, but what, what a great avenue to, to manage.
1: And economical. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, I want to uh,
1: circle back around to what we started with and and tell you thanks for for raising me in the wilderness the way that you did. Um, it it was formative and it gave me a deep appreciation for those places and it's something that that, uh, that is really important for me and became part of my character. And uh, even though it was dangerous at times, it was always high adventure and and
0: I'm grateful for it. Well, it was a, it is a great way of life. I should make another trip or two up there while I still am able. Um, it's, uh, and it's interesting too, because I'm in a capacity now where, um, I'm buying for multiple use of our natural resources and logging and grazing and, and, uh, People assess me as if uh, I don't have any appreciation for that land, and and uh, I I have deep appreciation for it, and uh, I don't I don't know it's it's hard to communicate how special it really is, and uh, and to be able to be a user of it, you know I I have high appreciation, but you know James it it was a Honor, but you know it it was something some of it was utility and uh just because that's what i could afford and uh but you know i i sent you a photo via text a long time ago and and uh it was uh, my grandpa my dad my brother and, and i when i was just a little tiny guy up in the sierras and 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 we were kings you know and uh and it's uh it's things that that kings would like to be able to experience i'm sure yeah so you know, it uh it's a privilege to to be a dad and and uh really thankful that that uh, uh you you appreciated that portion of your life and continue to yes sir
1: so i found this old ad and there's like dudes dressed up like construction workers and a guy's got a jackhammer and there's a crane and, you know, they're moving all these big steel beams and stuff.
0: Aladdin Stanley Thermos. Stanley, the top all-steel thermos bottle that's completely dependable.
1: They're showing this thermos, like, falling off this building and hitting all this other construction stuff.
0: And built to take a pounding year after year. <laughs> Get the top Oh, well, lands because in the wheelbarrow. A Guy grabs it out of the wheelbarrow. Now he's going to pour himself a cup of, of
1: coffee. I love these cheesy old ads. And most of the time, like, they're lying to us, right? That's most of what marketing used to be. was just, like, telling a lie or, or at least telling a version of a lie that, that made you think that you needed this thing. But we will tell you what, when it's cold out like it is right now, the only way to keep... Liquid, liquid, and not freezing in your pack is by putting it in something that's insulated, so packing a thermos in the wintertime is really smart, whether it's for a hot beverage like coffee or if you just want to bring some water with you, which is a really important thing if you're going to be out adventuring around in this uh in this snow that we've got all over the country and I think you should be because it's a great time of year to get out and about you know this is both a comfort and a safety thing. If you want to get something from Stanley, which I encourage you to do, you can use the discount code 6RANCH, that's the number 6 in the word ranch, and that'll get you 25% off of just about anything on their website. I encourage you to do that. They're great supporters of the show and uh, great supporters of this audience, and I love you guys, so stay warm out there, have a nice warm drink, and uh, make sure you're drinking it out of a Stanley product. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch podcast. I'll catch you next week.